morning. I begin by giving honor to God and blessings to Pastor Walton. Uh, members and friends, it is good to, to be here. Um, I feel honored to be here. Um, this is my graduate institution, and I stand here as president of my undergraduate institution. And it is an honor to be president of Morehouse and an overseer at Harvard University. Now, I have stood here before. Um, I stood here once before, back in 1981, for an especially poignant occasion. Over the two years prior to that time when I stood here the first time, there had been a rash of unexplained child killings, murders in Atlanta, the city where I now dwell. And most of them were young African-American boys. As I think about that moment, I was part of a memorial service, and I was the third, the second of three speakers. And I had an opening sentence at that point that is brought to mind now because as I think about the two years prior to this moment and how over the last two years prior to this moment that there have been over 100 African-American men unarmed, killed by police in this country, those words that I spoke in 1981 come to mind. I said certain tragic events in the life of this nation have caused even the least sentient among us to wonder how long it will be before Americans will stop allowing lofty visions of what America should be, blind them to the trembling truth of what America is. I suspect that we all have persistent maladies, individually and collectively, due to one reason and one reason only. Not enough of us are truly trying to discover a higher, better version of ourselves. But that is the quest at the heart of the religion of Jesus. And so few of us see it, so few of us know it. And that is the focus of this sermonic moment this morning. I see so many familiar faces. I hope to greet many of you afterwards. My wife is here, First Lady of Morehouse College. I see so many friends. But I bring it to focus in this moment, this sermonic moment, the notion of a gap between where we are and where we should be. So then now I turn to the text Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. There we find these words. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I welcome you to meditate with me this morning on the thought, hiding in plain sight. 
hiding in plain sight. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes and pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy that brings us to this place. We thank you for this worship moment. We thank you for this praise moment. We thank you for this preaching moment. We humbly ask right here and right now that you would bless us, Father. Bless each and every one of us with a, a revelation, a new revelation of your truth like never before. And as you bless us, bless us so that we might love you like never before. We might serve you like never before. We might reflect you like never before. We might see you like never before. Bless us, Father, so that we might get you like never before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Those of us who dare to call ourselves Christians, we each have some sense that we, we, know, we know Jesus. But what if we don't really know him? Not like we can and not like we should. And what if the overwhelming majority of us are, are not even close, are not even close? For the longest time, I have believed that there is a power in the religion of Jesus that most of us never realize or experience. I will tell you this morning how I learned that the best. I, I had help in my second year at the Harvard Divinity School back in 1981. I lived in a residence hall at the nearby Episcopal Divinity School, EDS. And of all the people I met inside and outside of the classrooms at Harvard, I felt most spiritually compatible with this old Irish lady at EDS. And she was the picture of an old Irish lady, too. Reddish hair and blue eyes, and she was short, exaggerated wrinkles. She was straight out of central casting. I remember that few people would sit with her in the EDS cafeteria for two reasons. First, because she was a chain smoker. This was in the day when you could smoke cigarettes anywhere. It wasn't impolite. She seemed to move around that campus in a cloud of cigarette smoke, always blowing time away. And second, this lady was unabashedly strange. She was certifiably weird. Socially awkward, yet comfortably aloof. Odd and content. And when nobody else would sit with her in that cafeteria, I did. See, I didn't, I didn't think she was strange. I, I thought she was just marching to the beat of a different drummer, just like me, in that environment especially. 
So I gave her the best thing that anybody could give anybody else, and that was my undivided attention. She explained that she enrolled at EDS not to preach or teach or counsel like most folk did. She actually, she said, didn't like the church. She didn't like the church. Instead, she was at EDS on a a personal mission. Well, that sounded familiar to me. After a life in the church and as a preacher's kid and grandkid and great-grandkid and then choosing to minor in religion at Morehouse College, I came to Harvard Divinity School on my own personal mission. There was, for me, still too much mystery about Jesus and about Christianity. I was on a personal mission to resolve some of those mysteries for myself. Ah, but this, this lady, she was, she was far more ambitious with her personal mission. Miss O, call her, Miss O. Miss O had a breakthrough in mind. She was going to decode the Bible. She, she was on a mission to uncover or discover or recover the real point of it all. She aimed to have a theological impact greater than Kierkegaard or Niebuhr or James Cone or any pope or any scholar. She was on a mission and through all of the smoke, she told me, she said, John, you know, I don't, I don't believe this Christianity stuff, this conventional Christianity. I said, oh? She said, all these people, they're on the wrong track. These seminarians, these preachers, these parishioners, they're all mistaken, she said. They don't know what they're talking about, none of them. They think they know, but they don't know. Then she ranted about how herd psychology and herd theology made us all prisoners. She said, we're all prisoners. We think we see, but we really can't see. You see, she was painting with a broader brush than me. Same color, basically, but a broader brush. Now, odd as it may seem, this old Irish lady's judgment of the masses reminded me of another old lady, an old African-American lady named Harriet Tubman, who had a similar thought in mind when she said of her underground railroad work, she said, I could have freed thousands more had I been able to convince them that they were slaves. I could have freed thousands more had I been able to convince them that they were slaves. Miss O and I became friends. We became kindred spirits. Often she'd show up at dinner exhausted from a day of concentration about this elusive Bible secret, and I would ask, have you turned the corner today? Did you find the secret? I remember she was thinking it was some code-driven word combination. The first word of every chapter would 
provide some meaning or something like that. And I, I encouraged her. I said, you know, Miss O, this, if that's what it is, that's the work of a cruel God. I, I, I suspect that whatever you find won't be so esoteric but obvious as if hiding in plain sight. I moved from EDS after that year and we lost touch and about six months later I heard that she died from lung cancer. Now, some of the students at EDS explained to me that she knew she had cancer when she enrolled. She just wanted full control over her last days. I checked with the one or two others who knew her story like I did and she, they told me that she never made her great discovery. I knew in my heart that she was on to something. She was on to something. With, it had a kinship with my own spirit about this thing. Not just because of my own instinct, but and my, not just because of my own experience, but also because of texts like the one in focus today. In fact, at the center of the religion of Jesus, there is this frequent suggestion that what we are after is largely inaccessible. It is elusive. Yes, Jesus says my, my yoke is easy. He says my burden is light. He says if you just would become like a little child, you will, you will get it. But more often, if you look carefully, Jesus is saying that this thing I'm trying to tell you, this, this truth I'm trying to get you to see, most of you will not get it. You just won't. He says in Matthew 19, not everyone can accept what I have said, only some. He says in Matthew 13, my mysteries are revealed to only some. He says later in Matthew 22, many are called, but few are chosen. And in this text, he says the gate and road that lead to life are small and narrow and few find it. Mm. Only some, only some, few. Few, few get it, but thousands or millions won't. Well, that's what Miss O thought, really. That's what Harriet Tubman thought. That may even be what the slaves meant in saying everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Now, I don't know where you are in your Christian walk today, but in memory of Miss O, I want to pose a pivotal question this morning. And just for fun, I, I want you to all each try to answer it. Just for fun, I want you to each pretend that getting the answer right could be your ticket to heaven. Huh? Okay. I see it as a kind of thing that Miss O was likely after. And like a Damascus experience that crashed in on my consciousness only recently. With two billion Christians in the world, I have imagined that 
a test of our true grasp of Jesus might be found in our ability to answer one single question. And I invite you to answer in your heart, not out loud. <laughs> answer in your heart. Here's the question. If someone were to ask you, what did Jesus talk about the most, what would you tell them? someone were to ask you, what did Jesus talk about the most? What would you tell him? You know, Jesus had a predominant theme. It's not love. It's not peace. It's not service. Do you know what it is? Every Christian ought to know it. And the answer ought to be the same. It is a dominant theme in the New Testament, if not in the Bible. It is the central message of Jesus. If someone were to ask you, what did Jesus talk about the most, what would you tell them? It's not tithing and fasting. It's not prayer. No. It's not, it's not worship. What if I told you that Jesus talks about this matter so much that it should be intuitively obvious and roll off the tongue of any mature Christian. What if I told you that Jesus talks about this one issue 38 times in Matthew, 13 times in Mark, 22 times in Luke, two times in John. What if I told you that 32 of the 32 parables, he introduces 12 with this one theme. 15 parables have this as the central theme, as their subject. It's central in 15 of the parables. If someone were to ask you, what did Jesus talk about the most? What would you tell them? The answer is not up for debate. Not even at Harvard. It is a verifiable fact, not an opinion. So what would you say? And no, it is not being born again. Although, when he taught Nicodemus about being born again, he said the purpose of being born again is this. And when he taught his disciples to pray after calling his father, he refers to this first. And speaking of first, he specifically tells us to seek this first. If someone were to ask you, what did Jesus talk about the most? I hope your answer would be the kingdom of God. That is that is the answer. For far too many Christians, that answer would come neither first nor soon. And you try it when you leave church today. You ask some Christians you know. <laughs> if someone were to ask you, what did Jesus talk about the most? What would you tell them? And you see what they say. You see what they say. It's a curious thing that it wouldn't come first or soon since it is so prominent. Yet it is hidden 
as if in plain sight. It's like it's hiding in plain sight. Maybe that's why Jesus compares it to, to yeast. You know, you can't really see yeast. It makes things rise, but you can't really see it. Maybe that's why he compares it to a mustard seed. Tiny. Can't see it, but there's something great inside of it. Maybe that's why he compares it to a hidden treasure hiding, perhaps, in plain sight. So now, with the few minutes that I have left, I'm going to offer something that most preachers ought to offer most Sundays and what no preacher has ever offered to me. <laughs> and that is a sense of what is meant by that which is hidden in, in plain sight. A sense of what is meant by the kingdom of God. You know, most of us are pre-Damascus. But we're quite certain that we're post-Damascus. You know, had I been called to pastor, I, I, I think I'd have founded a church called Damascus Baptist Church. I like that idea because Damascus is the moment, the point of conversion when we finally get it. When we finally get it. Damascus is like the old ladies in the church where I grew up, my dad's church, at a certain point in my dad's sermon in the crescendo, these old ladies would get up out of their seats and get up in the aisle and go into a frenzy up and down. My dad would at a certain point, the climax of the sermon, leap out of the pulpit. This is pretty hot, there's no leaping. I have no leaping in mind this morning. But he would leap out on a lot of Sundays, and that's why my mom sat about four rows back, about four people in. He was 6'3", 250 pounds. I said, Mom, what about, what about faith? She said, I have faith in my understanding of physics. I don't want to be nearby when he comes down. Damascus, a Damascus moment. That moment is rooted in what happens within. The kingdom of God is something that arises from within. Three times Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. And in Luke 17 and 21, he says it is within. Constantly, he tells those he heals, your faith has made you whole. Something within you, the power within you, has made you whole. The kingdom is right there for us, but so often we look in the wrong place. The post-resurrection Jesus, he comes back, he finds his disciples on the sea fishing. For hours they've caught nothing and he gives them a simple instruction. Throw your nets on the other side. Interpretation. Or so often what we're after is on the opposite side of where we are. Not external but internal okay so we know the what the kingdom and we know the where is within but how and I close with this how do we sustainably grasp and reflect the kingdom of God that Jesus emphasizes so much how do we get a hold of it how do we finally know it 
and living. You look again and again at the encounters Jesus has, you see that most have an outcome that is more than the seeker sought. Beyond untwisted limbs and minds, there are untwisted hearts and souls. Beyond healed bodies, there are healed souls and spirits. It's not just how I am, but, but who I am and why I am. That's where so many of us need a fix. My inability to walk right and talk right and live right is not just physical, but it's mostly spiritual. So the real stuff of the kingdom of God and the gift of Jesus involves a new energy that people have about their place in this world. Let me, let me put it another way as I close. For, for years at Morehouse, our mystic theologian, Howard Thurman, insisted that Morehouse men and a lot of others should listen for the sound of the genuine inside of you because you must discover your true identity and calling in life, so said Howard Thurman. That saying, the sound of the genuine, is still on the campus of Morehouse College. Uh, more recently, I have added to our campus ecosystem a quote from Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Have you had your second day? Do you know why you're here? I had my second day, my why day, on that campus of Morehouse College. So did my classmate Spike Lee and my other classmate, Jay Johnson, Homeland Security Secretary. So did Martin Luther King, who came to Morehouse reading on an eighth grade level, had his second day and was made PhD ready by the time he graduated four years later. Have you had your second day? There are certain people in this world, a few, who know exactly why they're here and who they are. They know who they are, and they know why they're here. I had a great relationship with Peter Gomes. He struck me as that kind of person. Jonathan Walton, that kind of person. Drew Gilpin Faust, that kind of person. Barack Obama. Knowing who you are and why you're here is characteristic of the road that leads to life that only a few find, and it is the stuff of the kingdom of God. The best job that any preacher or religion can do, any teacher or education can do, the best job that any parent or upbringing can do or any friend or relationship is to give what Jesus invariably gave again and again and again. Jesus gives young and old a profoundly clear sense of who they are and why they're here. And the moment when you have crystal clarity about who you are and why you're here, well, it's like being born again. It's like being born again. And as Jesus tells Nicodemus, only if you are born again 
can you see the kingdom of God? Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Great God Almighty, thy kingdom come. Amen.